Net-A-Porter presents The Incredible Women Podcast, Series 2, Changemakers. Net-A-Porter is excited to bring you the new series of The Incredible Women Podcast, Changemakers. I'm Sarah Bailey. In this episode, we are joined by Elizabeth Nyamayaro, the inspirational founder of He For She, the world's largest solidarity movement for gender equality, famously brought to the attention of the global media with Emma Watson's extraordinary speech at the UN in 2014. It was a near-death experience as an eight-year-old girl, quite literally dying of hunger in the drought in Zimbabwe, that introduced Elizabeth to the United Nations when an aid worker saved her life. It sparked a dream in Elizabeth that led her to London, New York, and a life of extraordinary impact, raising up the lives of others. Elizabeth's stories of her African upbringing are so rich and fascinating, and she is so inspiring when she talks about the African philosophy of Ubuntu, with its emphasis on our shared humanity, which has underpinned her incredible work as a changemaker. Today, she is campaigning, among other issues, on global hunger, and I'm looking forward to chatting to her about Marcus Rashford and his brave campaign to raise awareness and advocate to end child poverty and hunger here in the UK. We're also going to be talking about her extraordinary book, I Am a Girl from Africa, which is published in just a few weeks. It's a riveting and inspirational memoir, very moving, but also full of joy, just like Elizabeth. Elizabeth, hi and welcome. Hi, Sarah. I've been looking forward to this and um, it's probably going to be the best thing that I do all week and maybe the best thing I do all month. Oh, I feel the same way. Thank you so much. Like so many others globally, I first came to know about you in 2014 with He For She and that was just an incredible moment, Elizabeth. Thank you. Can you take us back to the beginning of your amazing story as a changemaker, your upbringing in Africa. You were raised as a young child by Gogo, your grandmother, who really instilled in you a sort of tenacious, compassionate warrior spirit. Tell us about her and tell us about those years. Yes, so I was raised by my Gogo, my grandmother, in a small village in Zimbabwe, And it was the perfect childhood. We lived in an idyllic small village which sat on a hill surrounded by rolling green pastures. And we lived off our land. You know, we grew in abundance of crops. We took pride in taking care of each other. In fact, I remember as a child never wanting for anything because the food belonged to everyone. We shared all that we grew. We traded for the things that we didn't grow. And what was remarkable is that if you needed anything, you just had to ask. And often someone offered what they knew you needed before you did. And it was just a a really wonderful thing. And and my gogo is just this incredible, as you said, warrior. She was a freedom fighter. And she was just, she really formed the core of who I am. I can just hear in your voice, and of course I've had the opportunity to um, read an early copy of your autobiography, but just so much joy and love and positivity in those early days. But you also nearly lost your life as a young child through hunger, and you were rescued by a United Nations nurse. That 
experience and lit something inside you, didn't it? It did. It, it was one of the most pivotal moments of my life and, and really sort of defining and shaped me into the person that I am today. So when I turned eight years old, my world got literally turned upside down. A severe drought hit our village. Suddenly there was nothing to eat and nothing to drink because everything just died. You know, the crops wilted, the our livestock perished, all the rivers dried up and there was nothing to eat and nothing to drink. And we went for days without food. And one day I was just so weak from hunger that I thought I was not going to be able to make it and I was unable to move. And and I thought I was going to die. But then this incredible miracle happened. This girl who wore a blue uniform and happened to be a United Nations aid worker found me. She gave me a bowl of porridge and literally saved my life. And that's the moment that really sparked my dream to become a humanitarian and shed me into the person that I am today. Because I remember thinking, well, now I too want to be just like the girl in the blue uniform so that... Perhaps one day I can uplift the lives of others in a similar way that my life had been uplifted. Oh, just to hear you say that, Elizabeth, it gives me goosebumps. You left Africa as a young woman, intent on joining the United Nations, but I know all was not straightforward. I know you had a very tough period, actually, in London when you personally encountered racism and prejudice and poverty and you couldn't really make a break. How did you survive that period? Oh, it was a challenging time. I left the African continent for the very first time in my 20s, you know, with this big dream of working for the United Nations. And I arrived in London to pursue this dream. I remember only having 250 pounds to my name. I didn't know anyone, so no friends, no family in the United Kingdom, uh, just literally my small suitcase and this big dream that I I thought I was going to achieve and I was determined to achieve. But then suddenly I had this fish out of water moment because everything felt and looked different. The weather, the culture, but most importantly, I think for me, the thing that was very difficult to come to terms with was the perception of who I am and where I'm from. You know, being African is something that I'd always been you know, it had been a source of pride for me my entire life. But then suddenly I realized that I had to constantly defend that. I found that people held this sort of preconceived notions and ideas about the African continent and our people that were in complete contradiction to who we truly are. And just even watching something as simple as watching telly and, and seeing fundraising commercials and how Africans were depicted as lazy and helpless, like endlessly walking around (laughs) waiting to be saved. It was just all very jarring. And and I just thought, what is this image that I'm seeing? And and, and I also remember that when I told people that I'm African, that they didn't see the beauty of my village or the hardworking nature of the people who raised me. Instead, in their eyes, I was lesser than, I I I was inferior. And And it was all very difficult, as you say, to comprehend. But then I also realized at some point that this judgment didn't always come from a place of hate, but rather just misinformation and learned biases. And this really became my point of inspiration to one day be part of shifting the narrative, to perhaps write a book that shows the world my beloved African continent through my own uh, perspective. And 
this is what I've now done with I'm a Girl from Africa. And, and I'm really, really excited and incredibly humbled to have had this opportunity. Oh, yes. Well, as I said before, um, people will love the book when they read it. But I'm just listening to you now. I'm, it's fascinating how you managed not to internalise all that negativity that you were receiving. You had a kind of like a driving force that helped you see the way ahead. I mean, where do you pinpoint that? Well, I mean, I realised that I couldn't give up because... I had, and I still hold this strong conviction that my life must have been saved for a reason all those years back when I was eight years old. And I also knew that my dream and my desire to make a difference in the world was inextricably linked to the hopes that I have for my own family and my own community, and most importantly, my African continent. So I knew I had to play my part. And so I had no choice but to persevere. I chased my dream against all odds until it came true. I joined the United Nations and I became the girl in the blue uniform and eventually became United Nations Senior Advisor on Gender Equality. I mean, just an amazing career. That alone, you know, you've been so influential and successful. And for, for people who aren't so familiar with your work, just tell us about some of your triumphs. Own them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'd phrase them as such, but it is not lost on me, though, Sarah, that not everybody gets to achieve their dream. And And I'm, again, like I said, I'm just really humbled that I did that. And because of that, I've been able to really bring some of the desires that I had inside of me to fruition. I've been fortunate enough to work uh, for UNAIDS, which is the United Nations Entity on HIV AIDS. And I was part of implementing policy across the African continent on how, as a continent, we can address HIV AIDS, which is one of the biggest challenges that we have and that I even I experienced growing up uh, as a small child. I've also had the privilege of working for the World Bank and WHO and really be at the forefront of providing life-saving medicine to communities in need. Uh, and the thing that I'm personally most proud of is the work that I've done to address maternal mortality, which kills one woman every two minutes, which is ridiculous to think of that. I mean, it's such an extraordinary legacy of just incredible work, Elizabeth. And it takes me back, actually, to your grandmother, Gogo, and what she taught you about the African concept of Ubuntu, which translates, I think, quite literally as I am because you are. It's a philosophy that insists on our common humanity. And I've learned from following you on social media, this is where <laughs> we made friends, that Ubuntu has really shaped you and your work. It absolutely did. It shaped my upbringing and my understanding of the world, right? That I am, it taught me that I'm part of a community, that I'm part of this greater whole, that I don't exist in isolation to my fellow humans. Because again, at its core, as you said, Ubuntu is this acknowledgement that our humanity binds us, connecting us to each other, no matter who we are or where we're from or what we believe. And because of this interdependence, it's also the understanding that what impacts one of us will eventually impact all of us in various ways. And so this really taught me to always find my humanity by finding it in others. It also taught me that because I'm part of a collective, that I have a responsibility to making a difference to the lives of others, recognizing that when I 
uplift others, I also in turn uplift myself. And so this is really, I think, the the core, back to Gogo, the core of who I am and these values that she instilled in me. And I think what's remarkable right now is that this message of Ubuntu has never been more relevant, right? Because we now understand what it means to be part of a collective. We know that what impacts one part of the world can indeed impact all of us. So I'm really excited to be able to bring this timely message at a time that we need it most. Yeah, absolutely. The notion of solidarity and also um, takes us to He For She, the campaign for which you are best known. And can you take us back to, I guess it was um, 2013 when you were planning this, what were your intentions behind He For She and, and how did you make it happen? So He For She was inspired by Ubuntu, right? I knew that because of our shared humanity, we needed to find an inclusive approach to addressing gender inequality because as long as the pursuit of equality remains a struggle amongst genders, no one wins. It's just nobody wins. And so I knew that we needed to find a way to bring men as allies, to bring all other genders, to stand alongside women and girls, to really figure out a way that we could do this together. And so with the support of my colleagues, we ended up creating He For She and invited all genders, in particular men, to, to be part of, you know, allies in creating true societies of equality. Take us back to 2014. It's not so long ago, but in many ways it feels quite a long time ago now. How radical was that notion at the time of galvanising men to join the gender equality goal? Well, it was really controversial, surprisingly, because, because there was this perception that men are the problem and that because they are the problem, that we can never engage them. And also there was the other camp of people that felt that men didn't really want to be involved, that they didn't care enough, that if we were to engage them, that they would not be part of, you know, raising their hand and saying, I want to be part of the solution because it's in their best interest to suppress women. But then to me, it was a no-brainer because if men were indeed perceived to be the problem, then I knew that they needed to be part of the solution, right? Because if you think of it, right, if if men perpetrate most of the gender-based violence, then Shouldn't we engage them to bear the responsibility of not raping women instead of placing the burden on women not to get raped? Shouldn't we engage men to say, I will not marry a child instead of expecting young girls to figure out how to escape a child marriage? Shouldn't men have the responsibility for creating more equitable workplaces instead of making women constantly fight barriers and, you know, the glass ceiling? And so it was just, it was just a no-brainer. And I remember, too, at the time... Also being inspired by Gloria Steinem, you know, she has a famous quote that the human race is like a bird with two wings. If one wing is broken, the bird cannot fly. And so I knew that we couldn't achieve gender equality without engaging half of humanity. I mean, perfectly put. How did you get to know Emma Watson and how did she become involved with He For She? It was just one of those, like, just ask moments, right? I knew that I wanted her to be engaged. I had seen some of the work that she had done with Comfed on girl education. I knew that she, you know, really was passionate about these social issues, but hadn't had this big platform on which everyone else would be able to understand just how determined she was to change the world. And so I reached out to a publicist to organize a meeting. And from the moment I met her, you know, it was sort of like a meeting of minds. I knew that she understood as much as I did that this would not be, 
you know, a nice moment on the on the red carpet to say, I'm doing this, but that this was a lot of work and she was ready to make that commitment. And so it just became such an incredible collaboration. And I know without a doubt that I would have never been able to do this without her. And I'll forever be grateful, not only for what she did on He For She, but also what she continues to do in support of gender equality. Yeah, she's quite amazing. She's quite passionate. Remind us about that speech and listening to it. Oh, it was such a powerful speech. It like, it like literally woke up the world and governed such phenomenal momentum. Again, you know, both her and I, we, we knew this was the right thing to do, that we needed to have an inclusive approach. But of course, as you said, there were also voices that were opposed to this idea. And there were moments of self-doubt. And we were like, you know, are we doing the right thing? Would this actually work? And her speech just was phenomenal. And within the first five days of that speech, at least one man in every single country in the world joined He For She, generating more than 1.2 billion online conversations. And that's really what culminated and, and catapulted He For She to becoming one of the world's largest gender equality movements in the world today. So it was just remarkable and, and incredible to witness it all. Yeah, I wanted to ask, I mean, just to remind us what, what happened next? You know, when did you, I mean, obviously, I'm kind of like all oh, those men joining the movement. I'm just <laughs> so powerful. But at what point did you really know in deep inside yourself that you were making a real difference? So when we started hearing stories from men around the world, right, so that one of the very early stories was from my own country of Zimbabwe, a man who had joined Hifoshi, heard about Hifoshi on the radio through Emma Watson's speech, decided to make a commitment to become he for she, and then started a husband school. He literally went around his village. He handpicked all the men that were abusive to their wives and decided to teach them to be better husbands and fathers. And then, and then we also saw, I think the other point for us was seeing all these very powerful men in the world saying, I want to be part of this. And we then decided, okay, now that we have their attention, let's make sure that this doesn't become another sort of, you know, click activism or a nice social viral social movement uh, online. But we ended up creating uh, at the World Economic Forum in Davos the He for She Impact Initiative, which enlisted some of the most powerful men from world leaders to global CEOs to university presidents for them to actually come up with concrete actions that and policies to end gender inequality. And we have since been working on issues such as child marriage, closing the gender pay gap, also addressing gender-based violence on college campuses. And for me, that's what real change is, right? When it isn't just a social uh, social media moment, but we actually see that translate in communities. And I cover some of those stories in the book as well. Absolutely. Um, Elizabeth, you, you um, gave us an overview of your very impressive resume at the beginning of our, our chat today. You know, UN AIDS, the World Health Organization, the World Bank. And you've been, you know, at the forefront of driving change on a really kind of like global scale. But I do know you've put particular focus on your home continent, Africa. And I'd just like you to tell us how important that has been to you, to you and some of the real physical changes that you have been able to enact in Africa. Oh, 
Yes, my heart belongs to Africa. You know, I am and will forever be a child of the African soil. And I remember vividly as a child one day, Gogo looking at me and she said to me, you have to dream big because your dream doesn't just belong to you. It's a dream for all of us. And from that moment on, I understood that, you know, a dream is shared. It's, in, it's an inclusive vision for all rather than just your own individual ambition or desire. And I also learned that a dream represents the hope of a future for the people you love, for your family, for your entire community, and in my case, for my beloved African continent. So it has always been my top priority to contribute towards the development of my beloved African continent through my humanitarian work. And in terms of sort of concrete results, I think my biggest pride is not what I have done myself in terms of sort of being on the ground doing the work, but the platforms and opportunities that I've been able to create for African communities to actually lead and inform change in their own communities is the things that I'm most proud of. Because at the end of the day, only homegrown solutions will be sustainable. So I've done work around child marriages with communities in Malawi where they galvanized themselves through the He For She movement and were able to not only put pressure on their government to outlaw child marriage, which has now been done in Malawi, but also they did phenomenal work going around the community and ended up annulling 20,000 child marriages and sending those girls back to school, which again, is just remarkable to think. Amazing. Yeah. Can you imagine just being given a second chance? Um, and so, so, so that kind of work is the thing that nourishes my soul. I've done lots of work with men in South Africa on the He For She taverns where men realized that they needed to be part of the solution in ending domestic violence and started this he for she taverns where, again, similar to the husband school model, they are meeting on a weekly basis. They are encouraging each other to become good role models uh, for their children, but also better spouses uh, for their partners. So that work is remarkable. And, and also River Blindness, which was one of the biggest projects I did at WHO, which really saw communities take the lead in distributing this drug that helps them to curb the impact of the disease in their community. So I think that's where I find my inspiration in, in empowering communities to be part of leading and informing that change. And I know with your current work, you're also bringing awareness to global hunger and the inequities around food and hunger have obviously only been exacerbated by the pandemic. Have you followed the work of Marcus Rashford in the UK? Yes, I'm familiar with his work. But for me, what's remarkable that he has decided to do something and take action on an issue that that almost took my life away, right? And also it remains the number one cause of death in the world. I don't think people realise that. And I am very, very passionate about addressing issues of hunger just because of my own story to the extent that in December I was fortunate enough to be invited by the Bill and Melinda Gates to host and moderate a global event where we convened world leaders and civil society and private sector 
to make concrete commitments towards ending hunger. And as part of this event, they were able and we were all able to collectively raise $3 billion, which again is, is incredible, but very far from where we need to be. And, and I think we need more people to be involved. And, you know, if people want to support and are listening in, they can go to Nutrition for Growth website and learn more in terms of how they can be part of the solution. Of course, Elizabeth, these are, you know, the incredible outcomes of that work. But as you know full well, making change actually, it takes nerves of steel, doesn't it? It's, it can <laughs> it be scary. It involves going against the grain, against the accepted narrative, and it can kind of be lonely as well. I mean, what has your experience been of those kind of like challenges? No, you're, you're absolutely right. The challenges are enormous and they're real. And it can feel rather overwhelming. But I've also found that, at least in my case, right, that the benefits of speaking up and taking action always, always far outweigh the risk of not doing anything because there's just so much at stake for humanity. You know, there is widening inequalities that needs to be addressed. We are dealing with, you know, a real moment of reckoning on racial inequality Gender inequality remains a big challenge. We have now seen that compounded by the current COVID impact. And so we just have to take action, no matter how small those actions are. And I think, you know, if we all did that, then it kind of culminates into this big change. And the good news is, and as you said, it, it can be quite lonely. And I do talk about moments such as those in the book when I was creating He For She, and I felt quite lonely and 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 scared, actually. And at some point, almost like I wanted to give up. But the good news is that you don't have to do it alone. I mean, back to the collective. And there are so many great organizations right now advocating for change. And you just have to join one of those and support them and become an ally and be part of creating change. Back to the pandemic. And, um, you know, we've talked a lot about your work on the global stage. But I wanted to ask how this last 12 months has affected affected you personally? Yes, it, it has been devastating, but in so many ways, it's, it's also inspired me to find more ways to make a difference because I'm realizing more and more the need to even just reset as a society and get back to a reasonable place. I mean, way before the pandemic, things were already unequal, right? We were not living this utopia where people's rights were being respected, where gender equality was a reality, but even more so now than ever, the need has become so much greater. And that has inspired me to look for new ways in a similar way that I did with You For She to work on a new movement, which is in the works right now and will be released by before end of the year, which will hopefully galvanize all of us to recognize our shared humanity, but also provide people with very tangible and concrete ways that they can be part of making a difference in the lives of others. Elizabeth, the US, where you currently live, it's been um, an extraordinary 12 months, of course. It's been a period of great hope, but also great fear, optimism and pessimism. We've kind of like grieved for the tragedy of George Floyd. And yet we've seen a flowering of activism. And, you know, we're now looking at the rise of Kamala Harris and Amanda Gorman. Do you feel hope? Sarah, you'll come to know so many things about me. One of those things is that I'm that annoying eternal optimist, 
was always able to find a silver lining, even on like the darkest skies, I'm always able to find that. And I think it also, it's also part of my, you know, being African, because I don't think you can find more people that are as optimistic as African people. I think we've gone through so much and we've learned to be optimistic. And so, yes, I'm very hopeful because, like I said, I also see this as an, an, an incredible opportunity for a great reset, which is very much needed. And I think, as you said, the rise of strong women leaders such as Kamala and Amanda Gorman, you know, taking center stage, it's incredible. And I hope that it inspires more of us to not only see what's possible, but also want to be part of that big change and that big reset. And well, speaking of optimism, and as we've said earlier in the chat, we've got to know each other a little bit through Instagram. And when I read your feed and look at your images, I always notice this beautiful yellow in your feed, beautiful yellow colour, just like Amanda Gorman's gorgeous coat. There's specific symbolism, though, isn't there, about yellow? Yes. First of all, I was, I mean, how awesome was that coat that she wore? I was just yeah, so amazing. happy to see her in it. And I mean, because it, it embodies so many things. So yes, yellow is my favorite color because personally, it reminds me of the beautiful African yellow skies that I used to wake up to in my small village in Zimbabwe. But it is a color of hope and optimism. And I think, you know, watching Amanda wear that coat, it just... I think it it was that, right? I, we all felt hopeful about the world. And now I wear lots of yellow pretty much all the time as well because it's my small way of carrying a piece of Africa with me. I kind of need that. I need to be tethered to Africa all the time. And when I wear yellow, I, I feel at home. Well, apart from wearing yellow, how else do you find solace and motivation? What are the things that make you feel good? So I find solace when I connect with my family and friends. I'm going to tell you a very crazy story. So even though the rest of my family is in Africa, we literally connect every single day by WhatsApp. So my mother, who is this incredibly spiritual woman, and my sister Memo, whom I know you know from the book now, they started this WhatsApp group called The Blessed Family and then kind of tasked my brother, Aussie, to have this sort of daily mandate of sending Bible verses to everyone. And that's how we start our morning. So you have to read this Bible verse, but you have to say amen and acknowledge that you've read it because otherwise my mother will pester you. <laughs> it's, it's intense. I mean, the whole thing is completely intense. It's a whole family affair. And so that's how I find my solace because, again, I... I'm so rooted in where I come from and my family. And I would otherwise, I think, feel lost without that connection. And so being able to do that, as painful as it is, as painful as my mother makes it, it's, it's just an incredible thing for me. And in terms of motivation, again, Gogo always used to say that to whom so much is given, so much is expected. And for me, that's how I find my motivation to do more for the world because I know how incredibly blessed I am. You know, so much has been given to me. And so it's it's easy to find motivation just through those words. And in terms of the post-pandemic moment, I'm sure when it's not going to be a moment like when the, the you know, a switch goes and, you know, we're back to normal because it's a continuum and um, to see things in the, those terms would be simplistic. But in looking at 2021, you know, wh what are you going to be focusing on? You know, what are you hoping for? So I'm hoping that 
this current moment, I mean, we, we've spoken about how 2020 has been has been challenging for so many people, but also it has given rise to so many voices, to so many movements. And I would like to see more of that continue into 2021 and beyond. I would like to see a world in which we build true solidarity on all these big issues impacting our humanity. Because as I said, we can't do this alone. No one subset of people fighting for one cause can do it alone without allies. And so that's my main focus. It's going to be looking for opportunities where I can be an ally to existing movements, but also looking for opportunities to galvanize people around a big issue, a big inequality, as I was able to do with the He For She movement. And Elizabeth, who have you noticed? Who are the young voices? Who are the young change makers, the change makers of tomorrow, who you're watching and noticing and who inspire you? So I'm incredibly inspired by this African generation of youth, who now, by the way, constitute the world's youngest youth population in the world is on my continent. And they will become the largest youth population in the world. And what's been remarkable is seeing how they are not waiting for someone to come save them. They are not waiting for adults to take action. They are saying, you know what, we are going to be part of creating the change that we want to see in the world. And it's just, it's so many to pick from. But if I have to kind of pinpoint three people, there's a young girl called Memory Banda in Malawi who was part of the crusade to end child marriage. She has done a TED Talk. She's phenomenal. And she's on the ground day in, day out, working to make sure that this policy that has now been passed actually gets implemented. There's a young woman called Farai Mubaiwa. She's uh, in South Africa. She's doing incredible work on youth empowerment. She was even, I think, the Queen's Commonwealth Youth Ambassador uh, in 2017. But, you know, that that's how phenomenal she is. There's an incredible young man called Erezi Edore, who is fighting to end illiteracy in Nigeria. You know, 65 million people are, in, are illiterate, are adults in Nigeria, and he's doing it out of his own pocket, just created the schools where He's educating them and giving them a second chance in life. And so those are the people that inspire me. And again, the fact that they're on my African continent means the world to me. So exciting. And I'm going to check them out immediately. Elizabeth, it's so inspiring talking to you. I could talk to you absolutely all night. No! (laughs) Is this over yet? Don't tell me it's over. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for joining us on our Changemakers podcast. Thank you very much. Bye, Elizabeth. Bye, Sarah. Changemakers was brought to you by Netta Forte and Chalk and Blade. Hosted by Sarah Bailey and Alice Casely Hayford. And produced by Laura Hyde. The executive producer is Ruth Barnes. Original music and engineering by Alex Port Felix. Enter the code CHANGEMAKERS at the checkout for 10% off your first Netta Porte order. T's and C's and exclusions apply. Thank you.